A couple weeks ago, we looked at this passage, Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 31, and we looked at it as part one of a two-part series. Today, we finish this passage, Mark 14, verses 12 through 31. It's focusing on Christ as the forsaken one, the one who was betrayed by Judas, the one who was denied by Peter, and the one from whom his disciples fled. Let's begin by reading our passage, Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 31, knowing that we will focus in verses 17 through 31 today. Let's pray that the Spirit would help us. Gracious God, would we not come to this text from above it to cut it to pieces, to tell it what it ought to say, but would we come with our hearts open underneath the word to receive the grace that you pour into our souls by it. We can't do that on our own. We need your Spirit's help. Would your Spirit open our minds and our hearts and our actions? Would this sink deep into our souls? And would we have no other theme except Jesus Christ and Him crucified? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hear God's word from Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 31. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after another, Is it I? He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. 
But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Thus ends the reading of this portion of God's word. Thanks be to God. We look now at this passage which focuses in on the institution of the Lord's Supper. You may have noticed that as we were reading through this. You've heard this before. This is a passage we read before communion. And that communion story is in the middle of this literary device that we call a sandwich. It is sandwiched between two stories, one on either end. The opening story is one of Judas's betrayal. The closing story is one of Peter's denial. And right in the middle is the story of Jesus giving bread and the cup to his people. It seems like perhaps with the disciples deciding to run away from Jesus, Jesus says they will be scattered. It seems like maybe Jesus has failed. He's promised this meal. He's promised his body and his blood. And then as soon as the authorities come and take him to be crucified, they flee. But of course we know Jesus didn't fail. It is precisely in his becoming low that he is exalted over his enemy, over Satan, and over death, and over our sin. It's important to see in verse 22, the context of this, of this supper is the Passover meal. The Passover is, is when a, a lamb was killed. It's a reminder of when, in, as Israel was coming out of Egypt, God promised, if you paint the blood of a lamb over your door, the angel of death will pass by and your firstborn will not be killed. So Jesus is claiming to be that lamb and his blood is that blood that saves his people from death. He offers himself as the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. The Passover context has been repeated for us here in chapter 14, in verse 1, in verse 12, and in verse 14. Jesus is the Savior who has come to suffer and to serve as that Passover lamb. Eating in Mark so far, you may have noticed there's a lot of eating in the book of Mark. And in every instance, Jesus is concerned with feeding other people. In every instance, Jesus is, is not concerned about feeding himself first. In fact, there are multiple instances where he did not eat because he was concerned about feeding others. And yes, there are times where he is concerned about them physically eating bread, like the girl who was raised from the dead. Jesus said, give her something to eat. She needs sustenance. But in all these cases, it's pointing forward to the fact that he is giving himself to these people. He has come to eat with these people and to give himself as the meal. And he has a concern about people eating bad food. Because he curses the fig tree as a sign of cursing the Pharisees for their bad teaching. And he calls them out for their traditions and says, 
It is Jesus alone who is the good food. He is the bread of life. He is the one who is offered throughout the book of Mark. Jesus was offering himself, the bread of life, for all who will take him. And we see the culmination of this eating and of this giving of himself in today's passage. And one of the early stories in the book of Mark comes to fulfillment here. In Mark chapter 2, you remember Jesus was eating with tax collectors and sinners. And the scribes of the Pharisees said in chapter 2, verse 16, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And that's why I think it's so important that the, the Lord's Supper is sandwiched between betrayals. Jesus came to offer himself for those like the disciples who would flee, those like Peter who would deny him. He has come to save sinners. One commentator summarizes the main point of this passage like this. He says, the self-sacrifice of Jesus in the Last Supper contrasts dramatically with the infidelity of the disciples. It is, in other words, not the worthy for whom Jesus lays down his life, but precisely for the unworthy, even cowardly and unfaithful followers. The sandwich illustrates the truth of Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the good news of our passage today. And we're going to look at it by, first of all, looking at the bread. And then we'll look at the cup. And then we'll look at the scattering of the disciples before we look at the denial of Peter. The bread, the cup, the scattering, and the denial. It's really following the text in its order as we find it. So let's look here at the bread in verse 22. It says, He took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. Jesus had already helped his disciples to anticipate this meal, this provision of food in the wilderness. Because in the feeding of the 5,000, when they had all gone to this remote place and they sat down in front of Jesus and were listening to him teach, they had five loaves and two fish. And in Mark chapter 6, verse 41, there is this really important foreshadowing of this coming meal that we read today. And when Jesus is there before the 5,000, we're told this. Listen to the, the choice of words in Mark 6, 41. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. Taking, blessing, breaking, giving. These are the exact same words in the exact same order that we find here. Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And in saying a blessing, he was praying probably a traditional Jewish prayer that was often prayed at meals. And it goes something like this. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the world, who bring forth bread from the earth. And of course, in the context of Christ, that makes so much more sense than without him. And Jesus, he, he goes forward and he, and he clarifies, he said here, take this bread. This is my body. And, and those words there imply, this is my corpse. This is my dead body. It references his death, 
His death that he's foretold so many times, it's coming close. It is upon them. It's the same body that was anointed earlier in chapter 14 for its burial. In chapter 14, verse 8, when the woman poured the ointment on Jesus, the very expensive nard, death is upon him. And when Jesus says, this is my body, speaking of the bread, we do not require this to be a literal statement as if this bread transforms into a physical body of the Savior. But instead, when he says, this is my body, it's like him saying, I am the door. This is symbolism for his promise. He says, this bread that I've been offering you the whole time, the bread that I offered to the many in the wilderness is me. And I'm giving you myself. And here at the meal of the supper, the table that you see set before us right here, which we will partake in here before too long, we partake in that spiritual reality of the crucified Savior given for us, his body beaten and whipped and spat upon for us and his blood poured out, symbolized in the bread and in the wine. Now, the the bread and the wine can just represent Jesus, but there's something crucial about him presenting the bread and the wine. The first word he says is, take. This is an invitation that we don't just look at Jesus' body. We don't just look at his blood. We take it. This is an invitation to participate in whatever it means that he is dead, and it means that we will die. It means we must die to ourself and to our worldly kingdoms. Jesus has already invited his disciples in similar terms into discipleship when they too are supposed to die to self. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So we join him in his death. We take his body and we take what his body, his his body broken for us means. The bread broken for us means that his body was beaten to pay for our sins. And so when we take his body, we take his forgiveness. And we're invited to die, but we're also invited to receive that life that comes from that forgiveness because Peter says in his epistle, he says, he himself, speaking of Jesus, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. So when we take that bread and that cup, we are taking the healing that he has earned for us. In Jesus' death, life is doled out upon all who look to him, all who believe in him, all who will take him. And we'll see this with even more clarity when we look at the cup here in just a moment, because as Mark tells it, he actually leaves the whole symbolism and the meaning quite vague with the bread. He actually waits until he gets to the cup to to dive into the the richness of Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice for us because for now it's just an an enigmatic offering of bread as his body he says take this is my body and he doesn't explain any further here in mark's account to a group of disciples that don't even seem to fully understand that jesus is about to die even though he's told them multiple times 
So the clarity's coming. Let's look at the cup. The cup, we find uh, this in verses 23 through 25. And here's what it says. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Similar to the bread, Jesus took it and he gave thanks, probably prayed the traditional Jewish prayer, and he gave it to them. And that prayer was um, probably along these lines. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. And that fruit of the vine was a common Jewish way to refer to wine, to wine in particular. There is every reason to think that here Jesus held up a cup of wine, a common cup shared by all those present. And that's how it seems to be presented here in Mark's gospel. He doesn't, once again, just hold it up. He invites them to partake of it because we're told in verse 23, they all drank of it which implies another invitation and a response, and they are to participate in Jesus' dead body and now in his blood. This, of course, would have been a repulsive thought to a Jew. It's repulsive enough to you and to me to think about drinking blood, but imagine being a Jew with those so many laws set up against drinking blood of certain kinds of animals. Much more how repulsive would it be to, to think about drinking the blood of a person, a teacher, But Jesus continues unfazed. And the fact that he doesn't explain away the vampirical implications of a literal understanding here supports, in my understanding, the view that he was speaking symbolically in a theological sense. Which is really played out when he says, this is my blood of the covenant. He's showing you there's there's importance here of a theological and spiritual kind that goes way back. You can't trace the use of the word covenant to anywhere in Mark because this is the only time it shows up. So you have to understand this covenant that he's referring to is a famous passage in Exodus 24. After Israel has been brought out of Egypt, they've been brought through the Red Sea, they've been given the law, God renews the covenant and in a sense recreates his people Israel there. And we see in Exodus 24, 8, it says, And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And in that moment, Israel was being recreated again, in a sense, as God's people freed from slavery, recipients of the law, and they were sealed to their God as his people with the blood of a sacrifice. And they also promised on that day that they would be obedient, that they would obey, that they would do all God has commanded. So when we see that Jesus is that blood of the covenant, we see that he is the one who joins God's people to their God. And in Jesus's life, we see his life is the completion of that promise that Israel failed to do when they said, we will do all that we promise all that you've commanded us, and they didn't, Jesus did it for them. And so then he becomes the one who joins them to their God. When you and I promise that we're going to do everything God has commanded, and we say we're going to obey your commandments, and then we don't, Jesus did, and he's the one who joins us to our God. 
All of Israel's failures are replaced with Jesus's successes. All of our failures are replaced with Jesus's perfect blood. And his is the blood that confirms the covenant between God and his people. And so too here in the scene for the disciples, they're welcomed into into that same covenant of grace. This covenant of grace that we see with increasing clarity as we go through scripture and here in what we call the new covenant, what scripture calls the new covenant in Jesus. It's always been in his blood. It's always been faith in him that saves from Adam and Eve to Abraham to Moses and to David. It's always been this blood. The blood of bulls and rams and goats does not save. It's the blood of this man by which we are united to our God. It's always been faith in this gracious sacrifice that has saved. And so with the pouring of the wine by the hands of Jesus himself, there remains no clearer or more focused foretelling of the linchpin of salvation, which will happen the very next day. The core of the covenant of grace, the blood of the covenant is near. It is imminent. All that remains is the sacrifice itself. When the blood itself is literally poured out for many. That leads us to that phrase in verse 24, poured out for many. What does that mean? First of all, the language of being poured out is a is, is language of sacrifice. It's going to be a sacrifice. And for many. Well, Isaiah 53 gives us some insight into what's going on here. Jesus isn't just claiming that he's going to be some sacrifice. He's claiming he's going to be the suffering servant promised in Isaiah 53. He is the sacrifice that will pay for the transgressions of his people. As we read in our assurance of pardon today. Isaiah 53 verse 12 says this. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. He was poured out to pay for the sins of many because his blood is powerful. And for this many, this this is almost too obvious to state. By doing it for many, he is doing it in their place. This is a substitutionary sacrifice for many, many. And we see this also in Isaiah 53, verses 11 and 12, because the word many comes up three times. Isaiah 53, 11 says, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. Speaking of the suffering servant. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus is saying, I am that sacrifice. I pay for your sins for you. And who are those many? Mark uses that word to refer, you guessed it, to tax collectors and the crowds. That word is referring to all who hear him gladly. 
Those who look to him in faith. And it's unexpected that these are the ones who look to him and see him. Because you would expect the religious leaders, the people who have it all together, who have all the right answers, who know the scriptures forward and backward, you would expect them to see who Jesus is, but they miss it. It's the many, the tax collectors, the sinners, and the multitudes who look to him in faith because they realize they can't do it. For those who believe in this room right now, for those who believe you can have confidence that his blood poured out for you is effective. It saves you. It doesn't almost get you to salvation, which you have to complete. It saves you and it saves you from the clutches of sin and death and it will bring you home. How do you know if you're one of the many? Well, can you look at Jesus? And can you let his righteousness point out your sin? When you look at Jesus, is he more than just a boost to your self-worth? Is he more than just an intellectual puzzle to figure out? Is he just a great teacher among many teachers? If he's just a boost to your self-worth or an intellectual puzzle or teacher among many teachers, I don't think you see who he is. But if you can look to Jesus and see his all sufficiency for you, and if it drives you away from depending on yourself into complete dependence on him and saying, I need what he gives freely and I have nothing to give in return, then you are one of the many. And you can be assured that his blood is indeed poured out for you and your redemption is finished. A few chapters earlier, Jesus was talking to the disciples and said, can you drink the cup that I will drink? Can you be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? And the disciples said, yeah, we can do that. And Jesus says, well, indeed you will. You will bear this cup. This cup of suffering. They seem confident that they'll be able to endure it, but Jesus shows actually, you're going to do it not on your strength, not in order to earn your salvation. You will bear the cup of suffering as an outflow of his own effectual suffering. His suffering alone is what earns salvation because instead of making them think that their sharing in a suffering is going to have saving power from themselves for themselves, Jesus makes it clear his own powerful suffering is what they need. Because he says in chapter 10, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for Many. Jesus' body and blood, which he offers here, given in the bread and the wine, these are the seal of the covenant between God and his people. He has stood in their place. He has borne the wrath for their sins and confirmed the covenant between God and his people for eternity. The cup is powerful. And then Jesus begins talking about the future state of this meal. You see that in verse 25, he says, until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. I'm not going to drink it again because I'm about to die. But I'm not going to drink it again until I drink it new in the kingdom of God. What does this mean? When will he drink wine again with his people? Well, he did indeed drink wine with his disciples in the 40 days after his resurrection. And, and we know that in that moment, the power of the new covenant is on display because he is in his resurrected body. He has conquered sin and death, but there's more to it than that. 
because we also know that the feast at the end of time, the marriage supper of the Lamb is when Christ is going to sit down and feast with his people in the kingdom of God in its fullness. And we will sit and drink the wine together to the full with our Savior and eat the bread. But you know, we don't just wait because he drinks it new in the kingdom of God with his believers in time and space every Sunday since then. In every generation since he ascended, including with you and me today, he sits enthroned in the heavenly places. And so the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is powerful. He is on the throne and he is with us at the table of the Lord's Supper in a very real, in a very special way as we drink of this blood of the covenant at this table. In promising this, Jesus is implying what he's already told them. He's, he's going to indeed rise from the dead. I'm going to die as he's promised. He, he's, he said multiple times, I'm going to die, but I'm going to rise. And in our participation in the cup with him, we feast not on the merit of our own death to self, nor on our good works, but upon his merit entirely, including the eternal life that he bestows upon all who believe in the sufficiency of his blood that was poured out for many. He is alive. His power is strong. And in the moment that the disciples see here, here in this passage, they see him veiled in weakness as he's about to be betrayed and given up to death. And in that humility that he took upon himself, he did all this so that he could work in unparalleled power to conquer sin and death itself. That's the suffering servant at work. So that he might drink it new with us in the kingdom of God. And we do. We feast on the Savior every Sunday with him. And then Mark tells us, they sang a hymn and they went to the Mount of Olives. The hymn was probably the conclusion of um, the Passover celebrations for that meal. It was probably a psalm between Psalm 115 and 118. Uh, these were the psalms they would typically sing at that point in the Passover meal. And then they go to the Mount of Olives with this change of scenery, you would expect Jesus is about to build up his disciples into a great charge so they might return into Jerusalem victorious with a bunch of faithful soldiers behind him. But no. What does Jesus tell them about what's going to happen next? The death is coming and they will be scattered. The disciples are going to be scattered. Let's look now at the scattering. This is verses 27 and 28. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. In the opening bookend of this uh, sandwich, it was said as it is written, so it will go the Son of Man. Speaking of Judas's betrayal, Judas's betrayal had been spoken of, that one who is close, one who dips the bread with the Savior is the one who will betray him. It was written about Judas, and it was written about these disciples as the shepherd is struck, so the sheep will flee. This quote comes from Zechariah chapter 13. And what this shows us is that their loyalty is not going to stand up under the weight of the shepherd being struck. This, this, is, a, this is a different prediction than the betrayal, uh, Judas's betrayal, because the warning that Judas receives, the woe, and then the proclamation that it would have been better had he not been born, that's not found here of the disciples. In fact, Jesus provides great hope 
in verse 28 because he says, after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. There's a difference between the premeditated, self-initiated plotting of Judas versus the scattering of the disciples in a moment of extreme trial. And that is not to excuse their sin. But the biggest difference is that some fall away and are restored in faith. But Judas never repented in faith. But instead, for the rest of the 12, there is hope. Jesus will go before them again to Galilee when he is raised up. And he says, I will go before you which implies that they will follow. They, they will again have the shepherd lead them as their sheep. He will be seen again as their shepherd and they will follow him to Galilee. And this isn't the only hope that there's going to be this resurrection because earlier he says that uh, he's promised that he would die, but he would rise again after three days. He's promised that multiple times in his ministry. He's promised here that he will be raised up and he promised that he will drink the cup new with them in the kingdom of God. And so we must remember that as he invites us to partake of the cup with him, he's inviting us to come to that resurrection life with him. One of the trusted commentators in the book of Mark says it this way. He says there's a satisfying symmetry in verses 27 and 28. There's a satisfying symmetry in 27 and 28. The striking of the shepherd results in the scattering of the flock, but... His resurrection will result in their regathering. Because death doesn't have the final say with the suffering servant. And as they go back to Galilee, we expect that the work that, has, that Jesus has accomplished in Jerusalem is done, and indeed it is. He went to Jerusalem to accomplish his task, and it was finished. And so when he had left now the place of death, and heads to Galilee after his resurrection, we know that, the, that salvation is done and it is finished. The once and all sacrifice that needs no repeating. You know, that's why we don't view this as literally Jesus's bread or Jesus's body and literally Jesus's blood. Because if that were the case, then he would be broken again this week and his blood would be poured out again. He would be re-sacrificed every single week as if our sins need that as if the first one wasn't enough. But no, we believe that that once and for all sacrifice is sufficient and Jesus is seated in his resurrection body at the right hand of the Father and he will return physically to reign in this place and he's promised to be at this table with us and to bless us. I can't explain how that works. If we could explain everything about our incredible God, he would not be much of a God. He's left Jerusalem. The job is completed. Our sins have been paid for. Let's look at the denial. In verses 29 through 31, sometimes this is like watching certain TV shows where the, the characters cause you to cringe because you see yourself in it. Oh, that was me. That's what Peter's doing. That's what Peter's like for me in this passage. You look at what's going on. Jesus, Jesus, with all authority, has said, you're going to be scattered. And Peter says, no. He doesn't like this plan. And so Peter said to him, verse 29, even though they all fall away, I will not. It's a lot of confidence in himself. 
And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Oh, who is he to talk back to God? Again, Peter doesn't like the plan that Jesus had laid out, so he denies. He's he's not going to have any part in this. He's not going to forsake Jesus. He's going to die with Jesus. He's going to have this. He has this willful declaration of loyalty that we know somehow ended in a threefold denial of the Savior. His bold statement in verse thirty-one reveals to us, not in theory, but in practice, what the best human efforts to follow Jesus result in. We can try as hard as we can, and we can put forth every effort that we've got, but we will, in reality, fall short. And we will fail to follow our Savior faithfully. Do we just surrender then? Just give up? Say, well, if I can't follow, if Peter couldn't follow, if I can't follow, are we just forget the whole thing? No, because Peter's weakness became the setting to show great strength. Peter's weakness was the setting for a show of Jesus's strength, true strength. Three times Peter was asked whether he was associated with Jesus, and three times he said no. In Peter's weakness, Jesus was strong. In Peter's faithlessness, Jesus was faithful. In Peter's powerlessness, Jesus's sacrifice remained the power of salvation. You can be the most well-intentioned religious person ever, but you will never be well-intentioned enough to stand firm to the end or to pay for the sins that you've already committed. You can have a closeness to Jesus and an incredible access to his very words like Judas did, like Peter did, and yet need Jesus' forgiveness today and tomorrow and every day to the very last day. And Jesus was very kind to Peter. He gave him details, specifics, warnings. He said, you're going to hear the rooster crow twice. You'll deny me three times. You have to remember in these details, Jesus is working that master plan of redemption, including the small details like the colt tied to the post and the man carrying a jar of water and the furniture in the upper room. And now the crowing of the rooster. Jesus says this very night, Peter, you think you're going to stand strong to the death? You're not even going to last tonight. Within the next handful of hours before dawn, because that's when the rooster crows, before dawn you will deny me. These are ordinary events where God is working extraordinary redemption. Now, there's no other gospel. Matthew, Luke, John, none of them talk about the rooster crowing twice. And that's an interesting detail that actually I think has way more significance because it forces us to remember where did Mark get his story? Where, why is, where did Mark get this detail? You may remember Mark is very likely listening to Peter's own eyewitness accounts and retelling what had happened in life as he walked alongside Jesus. So it's probably Peter's own remembrance. It's probably his own eyewitness account that, that makes Mark write down the two rooster crows. You know how, I, I, I can't imagine. Imagine sitting there listening to Peter tell his story. He remembers the details as well as anyone. 
Like, again, how you and I shudder and cringe when we think back to those specific instances in our lives. Or we remember how things went because of, of we were there. We saw our hearts. Imagine listening to Peter retell this story from that perspective. I can only imagine the pain on his face as he recalled his betrayal of his Savior and of his friend. He thinks back to that night. He's, he's rehearsed this night in his mind countless times since it happened. What could he have done better? Could, could he, why, did he, why didn't he think? Why hadn't he put together what Jesus had said? Imagine that depth of brokenness and weakness he must have felt because of his actions. I don't think I could tell that story without breaking down into tears, without crumbling. But you also know Peter didn't tell this story with hopelessness. He, he couldn't have told this story with hopelessness because there would have been no story to tell. Because by the time Peter tells this story, he no longer needs to hide behind that facade of self-accomplishment. He no longer believes that his strength will earn him a spot beside Jesus when Jesus comes in his glory. He no longer needs to declare false loyalty, nor does he need the title, the leader of the disciples. He doesn't think that in being called the rock that he's any stronger or better than any of the others anymore. Because the time, by the time that he has told this story for Mark to write down, he knows that it is precisely in his weakness in his cowardly betrayal of the God-man that Jesus has filled his life with a foreign strength, an alien righteousness that is not his own. It comes from someone else. Jesus' ministry and death have filled his soul with heavenly power by the presence of the Spirit. And it is precisely in Peter's unfaithfulness that Jesus' faithfulness floods in to fill the void that he created when he forsook Jesus. It is for such a sinner like Peter that Jesus died. And he gets it by the time he tells this story. Or else he would still be hiding. Or else he would still be trying to prove how much better he is than everybody else. And so when you and I see ourselves still trying to prove how we are better or smarter or richer or better looking or whatever it is, we have to remind ourselves that it is in that that we don't trust Jesus. It is precisely in that that we have failed to receive Christ's all-sufficiency. Jesus called the disciples to forsake themselves, yet they forsook him. He calls you and me to forsake, to forsake ourselves, yet we forsake him. And then he invites us right in the midst of it. Take, this is my body. Drink the cup. This is my blood of the covenant poured out for all who believe. Receive and rest upon him alone. Maybe you have voices from within telling you that you're not good enough. Shut those voices up with the sufficiency of Christ. Maybe you have voices from outside telling you that you don't measure up. Shut those voices up with the generosity and the power of Christ. Maybe you are incessantly reminded of how you have failed to be whatever someone may define as good enough. Shut that voice up with the faithfulness of Jesus. The only ones who cannot come and take this bread and take this cup are those who still think they have a leg to stand on before God. We have all forsaken our Savior. 
We all are in utter dependence upon what he has done. Don't try to impress him. When we eat our fill of Christ and drink deeply of the blood of the covenant, we offer nothing of ourselves, but we cling simply to the cross and we receive what he has done for us. And that's when we finally see ourselves as helpless and we never move on from that place because we are saved in his strength. Come, faithless ones, let's prepare to take this bread and to take this cup of the faithful one. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what wondrous love. What grace. All sufficiency given freely to all those who look in faith. Would we stop depending on ourselves? And would we again today be reminded of how much we need you? Would we take and be filled by Christ's righteousness and forsake our own lives and our own merit and our own righteousness and take only what Christ has given us that we might rest upon him forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.